Turn, if you would, to the second chapter of the book of Hebrews. I will start with a little commercial. Uh, for those of you who have asked, my daughter and I are in Little House on the Prairie down in Cleburne. It starts the first, I think, the first full weekend of March. If you want to see her, you have to go to the Friday night or Saturday matinee show. I'm in all of them. I don't know how this works out. <laughs> so hopefully by the time we're finished showing the play, we'll have it figured out, but that comes later. We started chapter two last week, and we made it about uh, four verses. Um, but there are four really good verses, so we're going to start today by reading them again in just a moment. But first, we're going to remind ourselves, once again, what the purpose of the book of Hebrews is. It was written to a group of Jews who had converted to Christianity and are now falling away. They're either contemplating or they already have returned or they've returned to nothing. It's like... I tried this Christianity stuff, it was really hard, and I don't want to do it anymore. And what it means to us today is the fact that we, like these Jews who had become Christians, we have lots of things that want to distract us. And that was the point of last week's lesson. Remember verse 1, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. It's not like somebody's going to walk up and put a sword in your back and say, change from Christianity or I'm going to kill you. What it means is we just kind of wander off. We were doing the things that God would have us to do, and we either got bored with them or we were distracted by something else. And that's what we see these Christians doing. And in order to make the case, the author of the book of Hebrews is going to go through a whole series of discussions about why Christ is better than fill in the blank. We started with Christ is better than the prophets. We moved to Christ is better to, than the angels. And today we're actually going to pick that up again. You find the highest level created being, and Christ is better than that. So that's where we're going to pick up today in verse 5 of chapter 2. But we're going to get a running start by reading the first four verses because they are so wonderful. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Go home and memorize that verse. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There is no plan B. The world is creating all kinds of ways to be saved. I would contend that's what every religion that ever created was trying to do. Find some way of fixing the problem that we have. But there's no plan B. What is our hope 
if we neglect such a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who have heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That's last week's lesson, picking up in verse 5 for today. For it is not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, Psalm 8, somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. There's a lot of stuff there. He's going to talk about this particular psalm, which, by the way, we did when we were working through the psalm. And oftentimes we, me, look at this psalm and we view it as talking about all of us as humanity in general. What is man that you are mindful of him? You have made him a little bit lower than the angels. What is the status of man within the created order? But sometimes we overlook the second phrase of that first verse of the psalm. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Now we know that Jesus repeatedly referred to himself as the son of man. It was a demonstration of his acceptance of his humanity. Remember, he's God, he's human, he is on earth, okay? So the author of the book of Hebrews is going to take this passage and he's going to use it to describe the relationship of Jesus to the angels and to everything else, okay? Let's see how this works. Back to verse 8, no, 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Step number one, the angels are not in control of everything. Remember, we ended up uh, chapter one with the verse that says that angels are messengers. Angels work for somebody. They have to work for a living and they work for God. They declare his glory and they bring messages from him to us. Remember, Shepherds out in the field, Christmas Eve, Christmas night, right? You've seen the pageant. And the angels appear to bring the message to the shepherds that God has given them to give to them. Piece of cake. God did not subject the world to angels. Now, at different times in different places, he has given them power and authority, and you might not want to mess with them. Just a suggestion. But the universe is not in subjection to angels. Keep going. 
It has been testified somewhere. I think that verse is interesting, by the way, somewhere. We know exactly where it is. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? It's a question. And I might add, it is a question that most of us have asked at some point in our life. Why does God give a flip about us? What is man that you care about us? But then it has that second phrase. What about the son of man? You have made him, him. Who's the him? We talked about what is man, and we've talked about the son of man. And sometimes we take this passage saying it's talking about humanity, and I'll go for that. What is man that you are mindful of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. In the created order, there's God, there's angels, there's us. And if you really want to keep going, there's the rest of the created order, okay? We are spiritual, physical beings. The angels are spiritual beings. You've got the picture. You made him a little lower than the angels. But it has this strange phrase in here. For a little while. Now... When we get to heaven, we are going to be adopted children of God. And I believe the angels will be ministering to us. But does that really mean that we were made lower for a while? Well, you could get away from that, uh, that interpretation. But one thing we know for sure what is man? What is the son of man? And we know for a fact that the son of man, Jesus, was made lower than the angels for a while. What in the world does that mean? It does. Maybe we should go there. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2 just for fun. Oh, I've even got a bookmark there. When Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, he says in chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind among yourself, which is, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Shall we keep reading? One more verse. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Okay, what is this telling us about Jesus? Jesus is, not was, is the Son of God. He has existed since, well, forever. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, if you remember, because 
we ran into that strange phase about being begotten. And we talked about this, the fact that this demonstrates that he is subservient to the Father, not that he was not in existence at some point in time. It wasn't like there was a time when I was not here. He has always been here. So Jesus, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, has always existed. And at some point in time, in human time, he became human. He entered the womb of Mary. Now, here's what you and I need to come to grips with. You and I, being human beings, shall I make sure we're all... You and I, being human beings, think that's pretty cool, right? We believe that human beings are kind of top of the pecking order, and so... We see Jesus becoming a human being, and we think nothing of it. But the Philippians passage tells us that he lowered himself to become human. Now, that's kind of an insult to us, right? No, it's an acknowledgement, as I've said repeatedly hundreds of times in here, there is a God and you're not it. But, but, to God, to take on human form, to be made for a little while lower than the angels, was a demonstration of the humility, dare I say, humiliation, that he was willing to experience in order to be the Savior of humanity. We're going to talk for the next couple of chapters off and on about the humanness of Jesus and what that was good for, why that was necessary, while at the same time the author is making us very aware of the fact that he is God. He is a human so he could be the perfect sacrifice. He is human so that he can relate to us. He is human so that we can see how to live a life in obedience to the Father. But he's God. But he's God. So, for a little while, Jesus, under the direction of the Father became human. Now, what does that mean? We actually talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The passage in Philippians says that he emptied himself. The way I envision it, and this is just my picture trying to make some sense of it, is that he took his God attributes and he put them on the shelf. And every so often in the story of the life of Christ, we see him reach over there and take one off the shelf, and it scares the bejeebers out of people when he does. It wasn't that he wasn't capable. It was that because of his submission to the Father, he chose, he emptied himself. And I might add, the passage in 
Philippians is really written in order to encourage you and I to practice humility. Humility is a wonderful Christian virtue. But most of us, well, we won't even go there. You made him for a little while lower than the angels, but, comma, you have crowned him with glory and honor. What did the Philippians passage say? He emptied himself. He became a human. He lowered himself. He became. He was killed. And God has elevated him to the throne. We saw this actually in chapter 1. Where is Jesus right now? On the right hand of the Father, on the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf and my behalf. That's where he is right now. Now, which of you are sitting on the right hand of God himself right now? You aren't, because you're sitting in this class. But the disciples got into a lively discussion amongst themselves, and then they drug in their mother, and they drug in Jesus to argue who gets to sit at the right hand of the Father. And the answer is, that's not for you to decide. So, why? We are to practice humility. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. We under, also, hmm? We, also are not that. we don't do that part. Nope. The under his feet carries the image of a king who can walk literally over his enemies. Everything is below him. He is the king. Here's one of those trick questions that I ask, right? Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Ready for this? What is in subjection to Jesus Christ? Everything. Now, you're asking yourself, though, because you know, because we just read the verse, it's to come. You're asking yourself... It sure doesn't look that way. Because if everything was in subjection, my back wouldn't hurt. If everything was in subjection, life would be better. If everything was in subjection, our elections would be a lot more fun. But, comma, the scripture says everything, everything, Everything is in subjection to the Son of Man, who we know is Jesus Christ. Let's keep reading. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Okay? That's what everything means. I mean, I was a math major. You draw your Venn diagram. Here is the Venn diagram of everything. What's not in that diagram? Nothing. At present, 
we do not see everything in subjection to him. Let me let you in on a little secret that will help you in understanding 99.9% of the Bible. That is everything that follows Genesis chapter 3. You ready for this? The world was not meant to be this way. Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything. Genesis chapter 2, a repetition of the creation of man and woman, naming animals, all of this stuff. And God says, it's all yours. He gave them a job to do, cultivate the world. Okay, I've got this vision that the Garden of Eden was about this big. And if God's plan had worked, Adam and Eve and their descendants, and their descendants, and their descendants, and their descendants would have turned the entire planet into the Garden of Eden. That's my speculation. Hmm? Well, yeah. We're getting there. But by giving Adam and Eve the free will to choose... They chose to reject the will of God. And sin and death and thorns and thistles and weeds and cancers and diseases and pollution and hatred and everything else entered the created order. And that is the world that we live in. Anybody question that? Pick up the morning paper and read just a little bit of it and see if you question it when you're done, okay? Everything is in subjection to Jesus, yet right now we don't see that. And here's my question. The moment that Jesus was raised from the dead, why at that instant didn't everything just pop into subjection to Jesus Christ? Right there. He could have done it. There's never any question about his ability to exercise the authority that he's been given. There's no question about that. Well, there's a question in our minds sometimes. Well, we wouldn't be here. Her, go ahead. Oh, there's an answer. His comment was, we're a little lower than the angels until one thing happens when we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Let's... Think about that for a while. Why did God not, well, just zap everybody with, when he zapped Noah, I mean, the, the generations around Noah, why did God not zap everybody that was messing with Jesus? Why did God not straighten everything up after Jesus was raised from the dead? Why, when you do become a believer, you don't immediately die and go to heaven? Wouldn't that be nice? Because God has a plan. 
He has something in mind. And that something is the salvation of human beings. You and me. Now, you can put on your philosophical hat for a moment. Not too long, because your head will explode. The argument is, if God creates a world that does, in fact, have free will, that people can, in fact, choose to do that which is wrong, why doesn't he just give them free will and make them always choose the right answer? But it doesn't work out that way. For some reason, God is calling children to obedience, and to be called to obedience means that there has to be a non-obedience, disobedience. There has to be the other in the world. Yes, ma'am. No, you go ahead. Uh huh. Yeah. We're not going to address that. <laughs> Her question is that if I keep back up a little to the last half of verse 8, now I'm putting everything in subjection to him or them, it radically changes the interpretation of the passage. Right. Yeah, and let's kind of talk about that in just a moment. Maybe I'll forget about it and we won't have to. <laughs> the question gets down to, back to the psalm. What is a man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you are care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Is the his of verse Eight, the one taken from the psalm, is the hymn from verse 7 speaking only of Jesus, i.e. the Son of Man, or is it talking about man, what is man that you are mindful of him? The author of the book of Hebrews, I believe, is talking primarily about Jesus. But remember, you have made him, humanity, a little lower than the angels. But we are going to be adopted sons of God. The angels will not be adopted sons of God. So in the relationship with God, we're jumping ahead. So that is the little while for us as human beings. Putting everything in subjection under his feet, the author of Hebrews is using that to talk about Christ. But there is a sense when, in which God is putting the created order into our Subjection. What did he tell Adam and Eve in the garden? All of this stuff is yours. Go, multiply, take care of the garden. So there is the sense, as was pointed out, that it is talking about us as human beings. Well, it could be, but we're definitely not going to go there. <laughs> we're not going to the millennium at all here, okay? Because 
What he's trying to do, well, I don't do that, that's true. What he's trying to do is show us the superiority of Christ to the angels. Now, the beauty of all this is that he's dragging us along with him. That's pretty cool when you think about it. But once again, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. We don't see what God has declared to be true. Does that mean we're believing something that is false? No. When we talk about salvation, let's just talk about your salvation, my salvation. We talk about a past, a present, and a future. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. It's done. Okay? We're going to see this in a couple of chapters when we talk about the sacrificial system. And Jesus is better than the sacrificial system because you had to take that lamb in, slit its throat, let the blood run on the altar, and you'd be declared righteous until next year and you got to do it again. And the next year you got to do it again. But Jesus Christ did that once and it's done. It's finished. So Jesus has accomplished our salvation. We today accept that, believe in Jesus Christ, and we are saved. Yet we also know that the process of sanctification means that's being worked out in our daily life. And we also mean that at some point in the future we will be glorified and it will be complete. So when we talk about salvation, we acknowledge the fact that there are things that God has declared about us that don't appear to be true. Huh. You are right before God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. But you don't know what was going through my mind this morning. You don't know what I did yesterday. Yeah, he does. He does. And he's working in your life to work those things out so that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. So we acknowledge the fact that there are things that God tells us that don't appear to be true. That's why we started this entire series on Hebrews by jumping ahead. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. What is faith? It is believing the promises of God to be true even when we see darkness. We don't see them. Because I don't know about you, but there's a lot of times... I would love to see everything in subjection to Christ today. Just straighten this mess out today. But God is working to accomplish something, and we by faith accept the fact that all of the created order is in subjection to Christ. That's why it takes faith. That's why, we, why it takes faith to do the things that God would have us to do. And that's why when you start drifting away, what you're really demonstrating is a lack of faith. You're saying, I know God told me something is true. But you know what? 
that thing over there looks a whole lot more fun. That thing over there looks a whole lot more valuable. I think I'll go that direction. So, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. This is actually the first time in the book we've seen the name Jesus. Just in case you weren't very, you weren't clear on what the Son of Man was in Psalm 8, he's just going to tell you. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Why would he need to do that? Let's keep going. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Oh, shoot. Who are we talking about here? For it was fitting that he, who's the he? He would be God the Father. For whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, who is the founder of our salvation, Jesus Christ. It isn't Paul, it isn't Moses, it isn't anybody else, it's Jesus Christ. By making the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Okay. So here is Jesus Christ, and he's being made perfect. I know what you're thinking. Up goes your hand. So you mean that at some point in his life, he wasn't perfect? That he had to be made perfect because he really wasn't? No. Jesus Christ, Jesus, we'll just stick for that for a moment. Jesus entered the womb of Mary, was born nine months later, became a human being who is God, or a God in human form, take your pick, and he grew up. He was one year old, he was two years old, he was three years old. He was four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. You get the picture, right? He grew up. And as we're going to see in the book of Hebrews, he was tempted in every form and fashion that you were. Now, we normally think about the temptation of Christ. You know, after he's dunked, he's baptized by John, he goes out into the wilderness, Satan shows up, Satan tempts him, and we think, ah, there's the temptation of Christ. Well, that was the temptation of Christ. Except for the fact that when he was one-year-old, he was tempted to do the things that one-year-olds do. You ever watch a one-year-old and you doubt the existence of sin? <laughs> they will look you in the eye, they know what you're saying, and they will do the other. Two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old. 
Jesus Christ, Jesus God in human form, had to do what you and I ought to do, which is resist every one of those temptations. Because he had to learn what it meant to live in human form. You think his flesh didn't get cold, hot, just like yours and mine? You think that he didn't have the same human desires, but you know what? He never once gave in to any of those temptations. But they were there. And guess what? The temptations caused him suffering. Now, be made perfect through the things that he suffered. Okay, we're talking about the crucifixion and all that stuff that led up to that. Well, okay, I'll buy that. But I think we also need to back up. He had to learn obedience from the day he was born in human form. But unlike you and me, he didn't sin. He had to learn obedience, and to learn obedience, he had to say no to things. And when you say no to things, you suffer. Obedience is not always or generally the easiest path. And Jesus had to learn obedience. He had to be made perfect in human form. He had to be made perfect to be the sacrifice. You ready for this? When you, a good Jew in the Old Testament, are going to offer a lamb, this is what you're supposed to do. I'm not saying this is what they always did. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go find the best lamb, the one that has no blemishes, not the one that is going to die anyway. It's sick and it's coughing and it's got the coronavirus. We're going to go kill it anyway. No, it is supposed to be the best. And that's what you're supposed to offer. Jesus is going to be the best the perfect sacrifice. And in order to do that, not once, not twice, but every day of his existence, he had to say no to temptation because he was tempted just like you and I are, yet without sin. Do you believe that? You see, I've always had this theory You and I are tempted to sin. And that temptation gets a little harder and a little harder. You've been there here, right? And finally, you just give up. You know what? It's easier to sin and get forgiveness. I'm just going to sin. So I would contend that in many areas of our lives, we did not suffer. Totally. Because at some point, we just gave up. But think about this. Jesus never gave up. 
He never got to a point and he said, well, the Father will forgive me for that one. Let's just do it. Let me just get angry at somebody. No. He took every temptation to the end of that temptation and he said no. Mm-hmm. Right. She's saying that a part of the word perfection carries with the, the idea of completion. He completed what God had told him to do. Right. But remember, where are we headed with this? He's going to be the sacrifice. And in order to be the sacrifice, he has to be perfect. And in order to be perfect, he has to have said no to sin and no to sin, and no to sin, and no to sin for his entire life. That's why you and I would make lousy sacrifices. Okay? Our death would be the penalty for our sin. His death, since he had no sin to atone for of his own, could pay the penalty for our sin. And that is the gospel message. And that is the great salvation. And that is what the audience, what the readers of the book of Hebrews are drifting away from. So, what's plan B? There is no plan B. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We just backed up a little bit. By learning obedience, by being made perfect, by being complete, He was able to be the sacrificial death for all of us. And guess what? No angel ever did that for you. Didn't happen. Isn't going to happen. End of story. For he who sanctifies... And those who are sanctified all have one source. Huh. He who sanctifies is Jesus Christ. Those who are sanctified are believers. We all have one source, God. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of you, of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. He is demonstrating his association with humanity by saying that he is willing to call us, us, children of God. 
You are my brother, you are my sister. What? If you do what the Father tells you to do. If you accept the Son. And Jesus is okay with that. The King has taken on human form that he might take us with him on the way back up. That's the gospel. We've got six minutes. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Why is there death in the world? Because of the temptation of Adam and Eve by Satan brought death into the world. What is the power of death of Satan within death? That is the fact that we are all guilty. We belong to the bad side because of our actions. The devil owns us until Christ buys us back. We are purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the power of the devil, let's keep going, partook the same things through, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is a touchy subject. You ready for this? You're all going to die. Unless Christ returns, which is fine with me, Unless Christ returns, you're all going to die. Now, we're all old enough to know that. Here's the question. How does it make you feel thinking about it? Does it scare the bejeebers out of you? Does it make you fret about the world to come? I mean, that's where we are, right? Someone years ago wrote that all of philosophy is learning how to die. Well, I'm not sure philosophy will get you there, but I do know that Jesus Christ will. The fear of death drives us to do really stupid things. We begin to think that somehow, some way, I can cheat the devil, the phrase that we use. That I can cheat the hangman. That I will not die if I just do something through my own efforts. But we're just told the solution. There is one who destroyed the power of death. And who is that one? Jesus Christ. Why does de death scare us? Because of the unknown on the other side. And Jesus Christ is the sacrifice to give us the assurance of what is to come. What does that take to understand that assurance? By faith. By faith, we know. And deliver all 
those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. To the best of our theological, biblical knowledge, nobody is dying for the angels who fell away. Okay? There is no plan of salvation that we're aware of. We do know that Jesus Christ died for us. It uses the phrase, the descendants of Abraham. Now, if you're a good Jew, you go, well, that's me. We also know from the book of Romans that not everyone who is in Abraham is of Abraham and that we are descendants of Abraham when we live by faith. So the descendants of Abraham are not those that are biologically connected, although we still have hope and promises for the Jews. But what he's talking about here is those of us who, like Abraham, lived a life of faith. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted. That's next week's lesson. But I've got one question to ask you for next week's lesson. Just a curiosity, just for you to think about. When Jesus was tempted, could he have sinned? Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Thank you that Jesus did learn obedience by the things he suffered and become the perfect sacrifice. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.